0: Today we're discussing the value of Mother Nature. The global economy depends on natural systems, but nature often gets shortchanged when it comes to measuring economic output. Air conditioning counts in GDP, but shade provided by a tree does not. Soil for food production and clean water for industry and human uses are also heavily discounted in today's economic thinking. I'm Greg Dalton, and over the next hour, we'll look at the financial value of nature in a world that needs to transition away from fossil fuels That are destabilizing the Earth's operating system. (coughs) With our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to be joined by two guests. Larry Gould is professor of environmental and resource economics at Stanford University. Tony Juniper is associate professor at the University of Cambridge, Program for Sustainability Leadership, and author of the new book, "What Has Nature Ever Done for Us? How Money Really Does Grow on Trees." Please welcome them to Climate One. Thank you both for coming. Pleasure. Tony, Juniper, tell us about this tension or trade-off between the environment and the economy. Isn't there so what's good for one is sometimes bad for the other?
1: What I've tried to portray in the new book is what I describe as the greatest misconception in history. And you can see it day in, day out in political choices that are made by governments, in the boardroom discussions that go on in the... Uh, major corporations across the world, and essentially it goes like this. The idea is that investing in nature, protecting the environment, looking after ecology, it's seen as a cost that is hostile to the process of improving progress, economic growth, and the betterment of human welfare. My point, based upon what I regard to be a vast amount of compelling evidence, shows the opposite to be the case, that nature is in fact the underpinning of the global economy and in fact the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of nature, not the other way around. And the longer we continue to see this false trade-off and to plunder nature in order to promote growth in the short term, the longer we are the the, the, the further we're going to jeopardize the future prospects for growth because we're essentially removing the basis of it. Because in the end we rely on soils, fresh water, clean air, the replenishment of oxygen, pollinating insects the protection of coasts by mangroves and coral reefs, the soaking up of carbon dioxide by forests and soils, all of these things, if you start to add together the economic contribution they're making, one estimate holds it's about double global GDP. And yet the bit of the economy that we're measuring, the bit where we actually look at the the economic growth in traditional terms, is based upon the plundering of this other part of the economy, which is worth twice as much. And so what I'm trying to do in what has nature ever done for us is to overturn this misconception and to generate a new narrative in economics, which is about seeing nature as an essential ally in the process of economic growth, not something that's hostile to it.
0: Larry Goulder, in the United States, oftentimes environmental action is thought to increase prices on companies and consumers, and that's bad for the economy, yes or no?
2: Well, it's bad if you take a narrow view of things. That is to say, if you require that farmers engage in practices that prevent uh, nitrogen fertilizer runoff from contaminating streams, or if you require that they herd cattle in a way that they weren't doing it before to prevent the discharge of waste that pollute the environment, on a narrow view, yes, this is going to cost more. But I agree with Tony, if you take the broader view and realize that what we're gaining from doing this, in particular, in this example, preserving water quality, we actually gain that the environmental benefits from preserving nature's services, in this case water quality, would vastly exceed the cost to farmers. So is it a bad thing? Is it a good thing? I think overall it's a good thing. The challenge, is to find a way that these overall benefits to society can be used and discharged in a way to pay farmers for the extra cost. Mm -hmm. There's a way that you can do it so that it's a win-win. There's enough environmental benefit here. It's worth enough to subsidize the farmers' extra costs so that they're no worse off. At the same time, we're better off even net of the subsidy because we have cleaner water. So there's a potential here for a win-win if we're smart
0: about it. Really comes down to who pays the costs, right? I mean, isn't this, this you can say socialized, mm-hmm. but people often think about what their company or they themselves are going to pay, right?
1: Well, this, this then raises the whole question of so-called externalities, which you'll be very familiar with as an economist. And this is basically the hidden costs in a particular transaction. So, for example, if I owned a coal-fired power station and I'm burning coal and I'm selling the electricity into the market, that is one expression of the costs and prices involved in the process of generating power that way. But there's an external cost that's not on anyone's balance sheet or being paid by anybody, and that is the pollution coming out of the chimney, which is causing the Earth's atmosphere to warm up, or is causing somebody to suffer respiratory problems somewhere down the road. Both of those things have a big cost. They're externalities, and they're not being paid for. So if you did start to express the full costs of different kinds of economic activities, whether it's the use of nitrogen fertilizer, the depletion of a freshwater aquifer, the destruction of pollinating insects, or the loading of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, if you start to pay for the damage that comes with those activities, then you get a radically different set of signals going into into companies, and I think that is part of the key to this: is actually getting the people who are benefiting from the environmental damage to actually pay for the costs of that. And then some of these things don't they don't look too clever anymore once you start to build in these externalities. One recent
0: case of that is Americans, but many Americans figured out recently that their health care costs include. The cost of people going to emergency rooms for primary care who are uninsured. And people figured out that that's, that I'm paying for that person who's going in the ER. And they, that changed some of the attitudes toward, toward healthcare in the United States. But when it comes to air pollution, uh, I don't know. Larry Goulder, has the externalities of air pollution changed the cars people drive or, or their attitude toward pollution? Well,
2: first of all, let me say that before getting on this program, I thought I was going to have to uh be the academic economist and explain what externalities are and everything and act as the the uh the economist but what uh, what Tony just said about externalities was was precisely what good economics would say uh that we have to take these extra costs into account now your question um, when we count for externalities it can raise the cost what we're really doing is we're accounting for costs that are already there yeah that are already part there. of the production system or the costs of the lost ecosystem services when we drain a wetland and convert it to agricultural land. Or the lost ecosystem services when you uh, deforest and, and lose the carbon storage services. Those are all very valuable things, and there's a cost of losing those services. Now, if you ask, the, again, the bigger question, is it worth recognizing those costs? Economic analysis says absolutely. Because once we recognize the cost, we change behavior in a way that we um, uh, gain something here. By avoiding these losses, we get more in, in return. It costs us less, for example, to manage a wetland and prevent its over-depletion than it would cost us if we allowed for the depletion and lost the various services that the wetland would, would have given us, such as the provision of habitat or the natural filtration of water or acting as a natural sponge to control floods. All of those benefits, when we preserve them, uh, outweigh the cost of preserving the wetland. So in a narrow sense, yes, it will cost us more, but in a broader sense, accounting
0: for the benefits, we're actually paying less. But corporations and even households and individuals manage and think narrowly. Corporations are externalizing machines. They want to bring in the profits and externalize the costs. So how is that going to change?
1: Hi, well, part of it's down to policy and the extent to which governments put in place rules or ecological taxes or whatever the other tools they have to be able to start capturing and reflecting some of these externalities. But actually, it's also interesting to see how some of the corporations are beginning to realize that this isn't necessarily um, a win-lose scenario that they are in, in looking for ways to protect nature at the same time as sustaining profit. And there are uh, examples across the world, which I bring into the book, um, particularly in the water sector, whereby companies are finding it's much cheaper to conserve natural habitats as a means of securing water supplies uh, into the future than it is to be building reservoirs and filtration plants and other engineering solutions. And so, for example, above Bogotá in Colombia, there's a very ambitious project going on there being helped along by the Nature Conservancy, a U.S. NGO. They're trying to restore upland woodlands, in order to reduce the amount of sediments coming off of the hill which are getting into the water, because those sediments cost a fortune to remove. If you can keep the sediments on the hill by replanting the forest, then actually you're cutting costs, not increasing costs. And that's a project that's happening now, with the backing of major corporations. So you look across the globe, and there are other places where this is happening too. It's already happened around New York City, where there's been a very effective uh, enhancement of the natural environment in order to improve water security, at the same time as cutting costs for companies, and indeed in that case also cutting costs for the people paying water bills, uh, the, 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 the people living in New York City. So this is um, something that is beginning to be seen as not necessarily so black and white in the sense of protecting nature um, brings costs and in fact is something that can be seen to be enhancing profit. And actually in the case of those uh, instances where natural habitats are being protected to reduce the sedimentation going into the water, you're getting a whole range of co-benefits. And so in the case of the Columbia uh, project, there will be a reduced flood risk Um, downstream as as less water is coming off the hill in one big pulse causing damage to property. There will be carbon enhancement as the soil carbon and the vegetation begin to take CO2 out of the atmosphere and there will be a massive conservation benefit as some of the endangered wildlife there has more habitat. So these things are beginning to be seen as not so much the kind of straight choice which sometimes the knee-jerk reaction in politics would hold is there And actually, as uh, Larry says, with a bit of thought, you can start to see some really exciting ways to innovate, not only to protect the environment, but also to enhance profitability. Very good. The the cat skills.
2: Yes. Jump in here. Economics is referred to sometimes as the dismal science. And I'm, I'm going to offer a little bit of skepticism here. I do agree with Tony that in many cases, many more cases than we've taken advantage of, we can find profitable ways to preserve nature. Ways that uh, actually would lower our costs. I do think, however, we would be a bit naive if we think that uh, those situations are always going to work, that we're always going to find cases where industry is going to find it less costly. I'll give again the example if you require farmers to change their agricultural practices, that may exert a cost. But there's good news behind the bad news. Even in those cases where it, where it does imply a cost to particular agents or to particular um, producers, again, the environmental mm-hmm. benefits to, are worth more to us, to society, than these extra costs. Yeah. So where we have to be clever is to find compensation schemes, exactly. where the winners compensate the losers, and as a result, everyone is, is better off. So we have to find ways, basically, to, to oil the squeaky wheels to find ways to compensate those or subsidize those who would otherwise form a a strong uh, group uh, to oppose this politically and to make it worthwhile for everyone. There's enough benefit there to pay off those who would otherwise lose, but finding ways to do it is difficult. In the case where there's uh, the the effects are are in the short term and the parties are all closely connected, it's easier. Uh, In cases where, for example, of climate change where the beneficiaries are – are are often future generations or where there's great uncertainty involved, there it's a lot harder to convince the public to pay, for example, to prevent deforestation. It's harder to to enlist folks, the potential beneficiaries, to pay off those who would otherwise lose.
0: Mm. Tony Jumper, at the University of Cambridge, there are some companies that are sending people there because they're starting to realize that this economic enlightened self-interest resource constraints and they're training people to Mm. get up on these things because they see risk, they see Mm. opportunity. Tell us about that.
1: Well, through the Cambridge program, we're seeing quite a few companies coming with the uh, intention of developing really quite ambitious programs to realign their business strategies with these kinds of, uh, of uh, natural uh, capital opportunities as well as constraints. And the motivations for this, they're quite varied. Some companies are coming because they see reputational risk. And so they see their customers uh, going elsewhere or they see themselves vulnerable to attack by NGOs because they're on the wrong side of the argument when it comes to, for example, the depletion of, of, of natural forests, or the uh, damage to to, to, to fresh water. So they're coming because they think society is going to reject their products because of the way in which they're impacting on natural capital. Others, and there's an increasing number of these, are coming because they see a strategic systemic business risk at hand. And companies that are in the agricultural uh, sector in particular, so companies tea, coffee, cocoa, um, peas, beans, whatever, they have seen already the volatility in prices linked back to climate change events, or at least extreme weather, arguably linked to climate change. And they have realized that 20, 30, 40 years out, it might be that a combination of soil damage, loss of pollinating insects, extreme climate events, and the um, scarcity of fresh water could be meaning that their supply chains are no longer secure. And then they will be unable to supply the products to the markets, which enables them to make profits for their shareholders. So they're seeing a systemic major risk at hand, and they would like something to be done about it. And that brings us back then to to, to the point about where you don't get the win-wins necessarily and where you need governments to be intervening. And there's all sorts of things that governments can be doing to help these companies maintain their supply chains into the future uh, in terms of, for example, reducing greenhouse gas emissions, reducing uh, nitrogen pollution into water. And some of these things are, for example, ecological taxes, um, emissions trading schemes. Those Those are two tools there that governments have their hands on. Another one, which I think would be huge, both in the energy and agriculture sector, would be to shift the hundreds of billions of dollars' worth of public subsidies every year that are going into what you might regard from the point of view of natural capital, as the wrong kinds of technologies. So the subsidising of uh, fertiliser use in ways, which is causing damage to coastal fisheries and fresh water, the subsidising of oil and gas, which is causing damage to the atmosphere. Governments have got their hands on those levers, and quite a lot of the companies that I'm working with, who see the growing risk out in front, they would like government to be pulling those levers now. And so, you know, it's not so simple, actually. You you, you hear about the effects, the, 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 the impacts of lobbying by vested interests. I think there's a whole group of new vested interests emerging who are not the old ones who like to keep the subsidy regime as it was, but a new group of interests who would like things to change in order that their business can survive. And perhaps what we're going to see in the next 10 to 20 years is quite big disagreements between different industrial groups. For quite a few years, you've know, you had the impression that industry or the private sector would like government to get out of environmental lawmaking because they prefer to have a free market. I think what you're going to see quite soon is winners and losers. So companies in the fossil fuel sector are going to be seen quite soon as actively hostile to companies trying to build sustainable agricultural supply chains because climate change and the volatility that's going to come with it is going to mean that uh, Shell or Chevron is going to be in direct opposition with Unilever or Nestle. And I think that's really quite an interesting dynamic.
0: Big food versus big oil. Okay. um, Mary Goulder? Uh,
2: First of all... uh, Tony mentioned that, you know, because of climate events, that we have very significant weather-related, uh, cost increases. And at least there's one channel through which you might think you can in- help engage industry to say it's in their interest to help, uh, promote policies that would avoid climate change, and that th- their costs of dealing with these weather-related events have increased a lot. The numbers are a little bit suspect, or it's, uh, the, the data are not perfectly clear, but back in the, ni- about 1980, the total damages associated in the U.S. from weather-related events was about $3 billion. Now it's $20 billion, maybe even slightly more than that. Now we can't, you know, not all of that is necessarily due to climate change, but there's at least a suspicion that a significant part of it is. And so this is a cost to business. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, mm-hmm. I think the extent to which books like Tony's and, and other uh, studies can really make this connection, it might help engage more of the business community into doing something about it.
0: But if corporations can have taxpayers shoulder those costs, and they can continue to deliver their profits to shareholders, that's a good deal for them.
2: I think that it's appropriate for we as a society as a whole, who are gonna, who would benefit from avoiding climate change, or more generally, from avoiding the loss of nature services, since we are benefiting from that avoided damage, it's reasonable for us to help cushion the burden on the companies or the uh, agricultural interests that are making the changes again this is a possi- that allows for the possibility that all parties can benefit we use society as a whole plus the companies that would otherwise shoulder a cost
0: but the reality is, poll after poll shows that the environment ranks pretty low among uh, priorities for American voters. And even more so when the economy takes a downturn, they care about their own jobs, their own economic security, family yeah. health, et cetera. So, uh, you know, this could be seen as a an elite left coast, coastal kind of uh, mm. concern, Tony Juniper.
1: Well, that's why I wrote the book, because exactly the same problem prevails in the United Kingdom in the sense that the environment is pretty low down in terms of the list of things that people say are their priorities for politics. And actually, with the economic downturn, the environment's gone even lower down. But the point I'm making is that this is not an environmental issue, it's an economic issue. And if we don't protect nature services, then the economy is at threat. And if you look at all the things that we get from nature in terms of food, in terms of fresh water, in terms of the productivity of the ocean, defence from extreme conditions, all of these things are economic benefits, And by repositioning this discussion as one which is about sustaining the economy rather than something which is about birds or bees or whatever else, I think is the way that we have to go. And not simply because I I want the environment higher up uh, as a political issue, but because this is real economics. And the the longer we ignore this, the greater threat and jeopardy we're going to pose to stability, productivity, progress, and growth later on.
0: What are some specific companies that are recognizing this that are actually – uh, making this a policy issue and training and reorienting their business strategy around this kind of it's risk management, partly and partly an opportunity. Neither one. General, well, I, you, you
2: mentioned the case of Bogota. There are companies like Dow Chemical uh, that are actually behind this. Uh, Alcoa also, surprisingly, is, is behind this. This is a project where the downstream beneficiaries from cleaner water are paying those mm-hmm. upstream to change their practices. So it's good PR for some of these companies, and in addition, some of them would benefit by having to spend less on uh, on in taxes
1: to to build new water treatment plants. Unilever is another one. Um, Un, Unilever is uh, another one. and the, 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 That company has gone quite far in trying to understand the, the, the total uh, impact of, of the company and not only looking at the supply chain and the greenhouse gas emissions or the chemicals or the water involved in the production of different products, but also looking beyond the company at the consumer. And this is really quite exciting in the sense of, looking not only at the fields and then what's taken to the factories and turned into a product, but also looking at the consumer and their behavior. And so, for example, Unilever looked at the um, overall carbon footprint of using their tea bags, and would you believe 70% of it is down to you or I boiling a kettle in the kitchen? And so part of their program is to not only be working with the tea farmers upstream to be using less chemicals, conserving water, to be enhancing biodiversity on the fields and then taking the product to the factories and having super efficient, clean production to be able to turn that into a nice product, but then looking down to the consumer and encouraging them to be buying super efficient appliances and, for example, boiling one cup of water if you're going to make one cup of tea. And so they're taking really quite a broad view of this, and it's being led from the top. It's right across all of the hundreds of products that the company is making, and it's really quite an exciting platform. And the chief executive of Unilever, you know, he says that this isn't simply about doing um, uh, ethical business. This is about sustaining his company long into the future by protecting all of the assets that they need and, indeed, by building better relationships with the customers who are using the product. Because if you can engage customers in using less power, they're going to be saving money. They're going to be feeling good about the product. They're going to be feeling good about the company and the brand that's bringing them this kind of information and advice. So he's making 100% business case for this. He's not seeing it as something that's done uh, because of some kind of campaign from Friends of the Earth or Greenpeace or something that is a bit fluffy. It is solid business, and you're seeing this now coming time and time again from a whole range of companies. Uh, Larry mentioned a couple of others. General Electric in this country, too, is also going on this path. Uh, a major construction company I work with called Skanska are trying to build the world's greenest buildings and they're doing this because they can see the market changing and they're helping their clients to be anticipating for example the kind of uh, agenda that people renting commercial property in ten years will have do we think in ten years that Big financial companies are going to be wanting to hire energy inefficient offices, or will they be looking for carbon neutral, super green, super eco efficient buildings? And of course, it's the latter. That's the way the world is heading. And Skanska is helping its clients to go there. Again, it's a very strong business case, not something that is simply about uh, a vague ethical environmental agenda. If you're just joining us.
0: There's, there's, so, there go. Sure, go
1: there's a lot of reason to be
2: encouraged by the developments that Tony has just articulated. Uh, But getting back to this issue of education and getting the word out, I think that's going to be critical for another reason, Uh, um, that as you inform more people about the nature of the problem, about the difficulties associated with the loss of important ecosystem services, that that will help bring about, hopefully, grassroots support for public policies. Because as I think Tony and I would agree, A lot of it's going to come from the business community on its own, but a lot of it is going to require a change in the economic environment through public policy. Just to take an example, we right now have about 30 percent or less of the wetlands in the U.S. that existed at the colonial age. Some of that land conversion was probably a good thing. We created more value through by draining the wetlands and doing something else on the land than the value that was generated from the wetland. But we've also – to a large extent, uh, lost more wetland than would be best for society in terms of the loss of the various services that are provided. Just informing farmers that, in fact, wetlands have a significant amount of ecosystem services to provide is not going to prevent them from wanting to purchase wetlands on the cheap and and dry it up and convert it to agricultural land, because those benefits that are lost when the wetland gets drained accrue to society as a whole, not to the farmer. So you need some kind of public policy, whether it be direct controls, constraints on the amount of wetland conversion, or some economists would suggest a wetland conversion tax, which basically tries to make sure that if a farmer is going to purchase a wetland, Mm. he or she is going to have to pay a price not just equal to what the owner of the wetland would want to sell it for, but also would pay a price equal to the lost value of the ecosystem services. So I'm basically making the point that there's a strong role for public policy in addition to the role for individual behavior uh, by business community and others.
0: And how many politicians are going to run for office saying, I'm going to tax those farmers to pay for all that they're doing? Uh, Not many. I don't
2: think many. But, you know, no. If you're just joining
0: us on the radio, let me say this, that our guests today at Climate wonder Tony Juniper, associate professor at the University of Cambridge, and Larry Goulder, professor of environmental and resource economics at Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Tony Juniper, you were going to say something?
1: I was going to say that the, 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 the choices that politicians can put to the electorate as you go in, in, into um, – uh, voting and choosing who to represent the, 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 the people at the time of new governments being formed. It isn't simply a question of saying we're going to tax more. It's about saying that we can be shifting subsidies, for example, and to be getting better value for the taxes that are being spent. It's about bringing in uh, new opportunities for market mechanisms to be deployed. It's about offering opportunities for those companies that want to go in the right direction to go further. And all of this can be delivered through a different kind of narrative. And I think really that's at the heart of what I'm trying to say in the book is that we need a different way of framing the economic conversation and getting away from this false choice which presents us with the idea that looking after nature is somehow a cost. I would argue that it's an investment and in many cases a huge opportunity.
0: Let's talk about the difference between uh, Katrina and Rita, which you write about, uh, the two storms that hit very similar places in the Gulf of Mexico with very different results.
1: Yes, there's a piece of research I, I, I look at in the book, um, which is about the role played by ecosystems in helping to protect property and life from the effects of extreme events, whether that be um, the uh, impact of storms hitting coastal areas, the effect of tsunami waves, or indeed the effect of inland flooding, and how all of these things are, to a large extent, reduced in the risks that they pose through natural habitats. And the a uh, comparison between the impacts of Rita and Katrina is a very good example of this in the extent to which one storm caused something like $85 billion worth of damage, led to tremendous misery in New Orleans, killed about 1,000 people, and really delivered a, a, a terrible blow to um, a large area of, of the United States, whereas a very similar-sized storm, which hit three weeks later to the west, admittedly hitting an area with less Dense population, but nonetheless hitting an area where there was property and people living and caused seven deaths and minimal damage. And the principal difference between the effects of these two storms was the state of the coastal wetlands where they made land for, with the wetlands around New Orleans being heavily degraded, with deep ship canals being cut through, whereas Rita came ashore in an area where the coastal wetlands were pretty much intact and about 90% of the storm surge power was reduced by those wetlands as the, as the storm made landfall. And you see a similar pattern repeated in analysis around, for example, the effects of the, 19, uh, the 2004 sorry um, Asian tsunami, the one that hit on Boxing Day after the earthquake beneath the Indian Ocean. That sent a shockwave across um, many countries from East Africa right through to, to Thailand and Malaysia, And the damage caused was much more serious in those places where the coastal mangrove forests and the coral reefs have been degraded. And in some places, the coral reefs were removing 90% of the energy in the waves before they hit the coast. And that, essentially, I describe in the book as a kind of an insurance policy, keeping those wetlands intact. You may not need them, and hopefully you never will need to protect yourself from a tsunami wave. But if you do having those kinds of natural habitats in place is a very good way of reducing the risks that people face. So
0: nature's crumple zones. Larry Goulder? is closer crumple to home, zones.
1: we have an example, uh, in
2: the city of Napa. The Napa River often would overflow its banks, causing considerable flood damage. But part of it is that area that would have been wetland, that had previously was wetland, was kind of a <coughs> natural sponge and would uh, help control the floods, had been uh, re- had been developed for industrial purposes right. and also for res- some residential purposes. What the city did some years ago is rather than have the Army Corps of Engineers come in and uh, basically build uh, larger walls to-, to harness the river, they took something, did something else, which they found was ultimately better for everyone, which is to um, uh, pay off those who were on this uh, previous wetland area to relocate, compensated them, then restored the wetland. And as a result, even though they're still flooding in the area, the flood damage is somewhat less. Now, I should mention that this is a somewhat – remains today a somewhat controversial issue. There's some that think they should have gone with the old engineering approach. But for many, if perhaps the majority of those in the area think that this is a way to do it, also you have to recognize that as a result of this plan, they were able to introduce some new recreational areas and, and, and some wildlife yeah. preserves so I think overall the city is is content with this uh, with this approach.
0: Let's talk a little more about California overall. California prides itself in having some very green policies in place. You, uh, Larry Guler, you work with the state of California. Is California getting the economic incentives in line so that it's valuing nature and thinking about uh, this in a carbon constrained world? I think the closest connection I could make is to California's
2: efforts to try to. Um, uh, encourage new agricultural practices that uh, land practices that would maintain or enhance carbon storage. I can't say whether they're doing enough of that, but they certainly are attending to that, because the ability of terrestrial areas to absorb carbon, whether it's forests or other uh, areas of land, is very important in controlling the uh, in effect in, in, in limiting the, uh, the concentrations of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So they're certainly paying a considerable attention to it. It is also the case that primarily the attention in California has been more on industrial emissions of greenhouse gases. But through their offset program, I think they also are attending to ways to kind of enhance climate regulation through absorption of carbon in the land.
0: Tony Juniper, you write that there's more carbon in the soil than there is in the atmosphere and that, that the soil really is a big part of the carbon equation that ought to get more attention and more, yeah. perhaps more resources.
1: And the point I'm making there is is how many natural systems, we just look at them for the market, the immediate market value that they can provide for us. And so soils we look at as the way of producing food, which can be instantly sold into the market. And as we do this, we miss some of the other things that the the soils are doing. And the the big thing, which is on the agenda now, of course, is climate change. And the contribution being made by the world's soils is absolutely huge uh, at the moment in terms of emissions in particular, but potentially if we manage soils differently in terms of being able to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And I I start the book, really, with a story of a place near to where I live um, in Cambridge here, Um, which was drained in the 1850s um, in order to open up an area of wetland for wheat production. And when this area was drained, a local landowner put into the um, peat soils there a great iron girder, um, which was um, about, about eight meters long, and he pushed it through the peat down into the clay beneath, and he put it into the ground so that the top of the iron girder was at ground level in 1852. If you go there today, the top of that iron girder is five yards above the ground, And what's happened is that the ground has shrunk across hundreds of square miles of North Cambridgeshire, across this area of wetland, and that soil has basically turned into carbon dioxide because peat is basically the unrotted plant remains accumulating in the wetland over many, many centuries. It's basically comprised of carbon. When it's dried out and exposed to the air, the carbon unites with oxygen and it turns into carbon dioxide. And so whilst we've managed to grow a bit of food in that area over um, the last century, we've emitted hundreds of millions of tons of carbon dioxide. And the government, of course, is spending a fortune trying to encourage energy efficiency, solar panels, wind turbines, all of these things that are essential. But we've ignored the vast contribution being made by the soils doing that work for nothing.
0: Wow. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Is is Europe ahead of the United States in managing this? Or where does Europe and the United States fall in terms of recognizing the economic system and the natural systems are connected in a way. I think Do it's
1: anything? mixed. I, I think it's mixed. I think across the world you can, you can see leadership coming from corporations both here and in Europe. Um, I think probably the, I would say that, that the United States is a bit ahead in terms of how business is looking at this, and I think probably that in turn is linked to the extent to which some of your big non-governmental groups like the Nature Conservancy and Conservation International have actually made it their business to talk about these kinds of things in the way that we're doing today. They've tried to make nature an economic issue and they've tried to engage the um, big companies on that, and they've had some success. In Europe, there are some companies going in this direction, but it's not as pronounced. Uh, On the policy side, I think probably there is a little bit more being done in Europe compared with here. I I don't study the U.S. political um, system on the environmental side uh, as much as I do from the European point of view, but I hear things coming from here which just sound mad in the sense of, trying to cut down the budget of the Environmental Protection Agency, which, of course, is sustaining these services which enable the economy to grow. Um, I hear about scepticism on climate change in the face of overwhelming scientific evidence. That just seems completely irrational. So I think some of the policy in Europe is a little bit ahead of of where we are here. But I wouldn't say that the United States has no leadership potential or indeed already doing some good things. It is. Um, But I think, you know, the political side is probably a little bit behind the European side. Having said that, it's all relative. What's going on in Europe is not brilliant either. Larry Gulder
0: what are the bright <laughs> spots you see in the United States regarding uh, pricing carbon pollution or, or policy action regarding the things we're talking about? Well, you save the
2: tough questions for last, I see. Um, well, i got tougher ones yet. Well, uh, it depends what your uh, expectations are. I, obviously, I feel that the political situation, is, as do many, uh, is really very, very... Difficult in the U.S. now. Things are very polarized. Um, and in terms of climate change policy, I'm sorry, giving you the negative first. Um, you know, there was some movement toward a cap and trade system uh, through the Waxman-Markey bill uh, that was passed by the House in 2009, but never reached the Senate. Uh, now, uh, the support for cap and trade seems to have, have, have has, seems to have declined since then. There's some talk about a carbon tax. Uh, as an alternative at the national level to um, uh, perhaps be part of a broader tax reform effort. But even then, the overall support is, is kind of weak. If you ask me for bright spots, I would say that I was encouraged by President Obama's uh, reference uh, in his State of the Union address uh, to uh, the climate problem and his basically throwing down the gauntlet and saying that if Congress isn't going to pass a national climate bill, he will take action through the executive branch. So I'm encouraged by that. And uh, the sense that one gets is that he's serious about this, and the EPA is already drawing up plans through to control carbon dioxide under the levers or the auspices of the Clean Air Act. So I think that that will do something. I would have preferred there be legislation – that could either introduce carbon pricing through cap-and-trade or a carbon tax. I think that would be a more cost-effective way of achieving the reductions. But I certainly would uh, be happy for half a loaf in the form of uh, uh, these executive efforts to control, in particular, emissions from coal-fired power plants. Mm -hmm. Also, a bright spot is that many states are already taking pretty significant action Mm -hmm. through, for example, renewable portfolio standards, which uh, impose a certain minimal proportion of uh, clean or renewable energy that has to be uh, purchased by utilities uh, as a, as a proportion of the total energy that they purchase. So there are some bright spots, but we have a long way to go. I think, again, getting the word out and help getting grassroots support is a, is a key to getting political action. Um, and uh, just as – it turns out, though, that there is already considerably more support at the grassroots level for vigorous climate change policy than there is support among our elected uh, legislators uh, in Washington, D.C. Um, and you can p- perhaps uh, invoke special interests as as an explanation for that, that uh, many politicians recognize that climate change, for better or for worse, or worse, is not a decisive issue in terms of getting elected. They can violate the, the preferences of their constituencies, constituents and, and still get reelected as long as they have uh, the right vote on, on, on more decisive issues like abortion or gun control
0: or the economy. So, Tony Juniper, perhaps corporations are the bright spot where leadership can happen?
1: Uh, Yes, and I think the challenge for for those of us engaged in this transition from uh, where we are to this more rational economy with nature built at the heart of it, I think one of the jobs we have to do is find ways to give market advantage to those corporations that are beginning to show leadership. And so how is it going to be possible for Unilever to be gaining more market share at the expense of its competitors or for Skanska to be building more buildings than its competitors? And I think this then comes down to to, to the grassroots side to an extent as well in terms of where consumers are showing their preference to where they want to shop and raising awareness amongst the client groups of some of the business-to-business enterprises that are principally doing work with other companies. And so for me now that is the big challenge is how those companies that are in the leadership position can start doing better than their peers who are not. And I think once you can start building that kind of dynamic, you get a virtuous snowball where everybody's trying to catch up with the leaders rather than the race to the bottom that's going on at the moment. So you're asking for government to
0: favor certain companies?
1: I'm asking for the government to favor certain outcomes and then the companies that are able to achieve those outcomes to be doing better in the market than those who are not. And this is something that is not alien. It's just a question of applying that kind of thinking to the environmental side. For example, we are very used to having health and safety laws. You're not allowed to put um, poisonous substances into toys that are being uh, given to children. And so why is it that we allow environmental abuses of a kind which uh, are quite irrational? So I think it's about making that political leap to see... The environmental agenda is very much part of the economic one and then to be putting in place the kinds of tools, whether they be in the market, whether they be taxation, whether they be trading schemes, to enable those companies that are in the lead to be leading even better than they are now. That's what it's about, in my opinion. So it's not about replacing the market with regulation. Regulation is essential, but the market mechanisms can also be there. And it's about giving the uh, signals that are going to take us away from uh, the destructive short-term policies that we rely on at the moment to a much more rational, joined-up, and long-term uh, approach for business.
0: Larry Goulder, should governments interfere, intervene in markets in that way? To favor uh, it depends what
2: you mean by in that way. Uh, but the way that Tony described it, I would be very much in favour of. Basically, we're what I hear you, Tony, is suggesting is we should require that businesses take into account the full costs of their activities the cost, exactly. including the external costs
3: not just waste. what would
2: ordinarily yep. be the private mm-hmm. costs in doing so it's not meant to be punitive but it's rather to align the pursuit of profit with the overall public good yeah exactly. and if we, if one does that then going doing right by the environment will give you a market advantage and will produce the kind of results so it's it's not picking winners per se it's no, rather okay. incorporating through direct regulation or through price mechanisms, a way of having producers take into account of all the costs involved, all of society's costs when they produce.
0: Larry the Gould is Professor of Environmental and Resource Economics at Stanford. Our other guest at Climate One today is Tony Juniper, a professor at the University of Cambridge and author of What Has Nature Ever Done For Us. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, we're about to go to audience questions, but first I want to ask you, What do you do yourselves to manage your own carbon footprint and maintain a connection to nature?
1: Um, Well, I don't help it by flying to the United States to talk about my new book. But the calculation I make there is if if enough people hear about the ideas in it, perhaps there there is an offset there which makes it an overall beneficial contribution. So you're putting it on there. It's on you all Aside aside from the aeroplanes, we have a very efficient home. We have a very efficient vehicle. Um, the vehicle doesn't get used very much. We cycle and walk everywhere, and we grow quite a bit of our own food, and little allotment that we have nearby. We recycle um, pretty much all of our waste. Um, what else do we do? So that's for starters.
0: Lots of uh, uh, English, lots of meat in the diet?
1: Um, fair bit of meat, but we get it from uh, local farms where the animals are being looked after properly. Um, for me, uh, the transition to more sustainable agriculture would involve more organic farming, Animals are essential for successful organic farming, so I feel quite comfortable about eating meat as long as the animals are kept properly. And actually, animals can be part of the way in which we increase soil carbon. Mm -hmm. So I think there can be some virtuous um, connections there. But too much meat uh, in the global diet, obviously, is driving us um, in the wrong direction. But I think probably that's as much about the way the meat is being produced as as much the the, 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 the kind of diets that we've got. Larry Gilder? Well, my
2: girlfriend says that uh, I don't recycle enough. Um, mm. Yeah, so I'm improving mm. on that score. Um, I guess one thing I'd say is I just bought a Chevy Volt,
0: mm. which uh, <laughs> runs partially on 40 miles on electricity. Okay, yeah, I like it. Uh, let's go to audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Hey, thank you guys for coming out. I'll uh, I wrote it down so I don't go on a rant. <clears throat> anyway. So I feel like traditional financial standards and economic concepts, things like company value, how the company values land and GDP, time value of money, are somewhat counterproductive to these ideas of valuing nature and its potential benefits to society, uh, promoting natural capital valuation. So I ask, my question is, uh, how do you guys see these traditional financial standards and our economic concepts adapting to a post-industrial revolution uh, economy that we live in now.
1: Thank you. Tony Juniper? Um, I, I think you're right in, in invoking uh, the way in which we're, we're, we're looking at finance and, and the way in which we're measuring performance as being a, a big part of the solution to, to this apparent dilemma that we're in. And happily, however, there's quite a lot of work going on around the world to try and correct this with different organizations and processes, for example, TEEB for Business, which is about the economics of ecosystems and biodiversity and how business can begin to start accounting differently for its impacts. There's another process called the International Integrated Reporting Council. Both of these things are trying to look at ways in which companies can start to report the environmental benefits and damage they're causing alongside the financial profit and loss and also doing that in terms of their social impacts as well. So are they creating jobs? Are they helping uh, society to thrive. This is not simple, as you can imagine, but if we can begin to capture a much more comprehensive set of numbers so that not only are companies looking at the financial bottom line but also the ecological top line and that being reported to shareholders and society, then we start to go to some very different conclusions to the ones that we reach now whereby we see one figure, the profit, and the other two, the society contribution and the environmental impact is hidden from view completely. So I think that is the correct assumption that we need to be able to get into this different world through different kinds of accounting. I think that's essential and it's coming, uh, but it needs to go quicker.
0: And one company, Puma, recently came out with a profit statement that said, here's our profits, uh, but if you fully account for the externalized damage, our profits would be about 30% of that whole, yeah. and they hope to use that as a model for other companies to say, here's your profits and here's your fully integrated profits. Larry Guler, did you want to add anything?
2: Yeah, I would simply distinguish between the economic incentives often faced by many in the private sector, by many businesses, and what good economic analysis would would recommend. In a world where we don't have all the external costs internalized, yes, there's going to be this deviation. But I think good economic analysis ultimately – is the friend of nature. It comes up with uh, programs or suggests policies for protecting nature services and basically enhancing the social value that we get uh, as a result of protecting nature, despite the cost that may be involved. So I really see uh, there being no conflict. No. There is one um, problem, of course, that we're so much wedded to some of the measures of economic success that that can distort our thinking. GDP, a gross domestic product, really doesn't take into account the nature services or what or many of the, the loss of nature services, which would actually mean that we may not be doing as well as we thought. So one thing that really is important is to come up with better measures. and many of my colleagues at Stanford are, are working on doing that and coming up with alternative measures that are more consistent with our true uh, well-being and sustainability.
0: There's another group, the Sustainable Accounting Standards Board, working on, right. on rules for that sort of thing. Let's have our next audience Indeed. question in Climate One.
4: Thank you for this opportunity. Gary Latchaw from Cupertino. So the question I have for perhaps both of you is what you would think of a, a compromise or a trade-off between getting rid of, like, mileage standards or renewable energy standards versus actually taxing carbon or a cap-and-trade system.
0: Economists usually favor tax as a clean way, Larry Goulder. Well, you know, this was a perfect
2: plug. You know, Tony's showing his book. I have a paper, an academic paper that I just finished. (laughs) It's Yes. It compares renewable portfolio standards with cap and trade or carbon tax. Bottom line is, it's, it's, it can be just as cost-effective an RPS, uh, that kind of standard.
0: Renewable portfolio
2: standard. As cap-and-trade or carbon tax um, under some circumstances. In any case, it's, it's, it's not much worse. And my view is we have so much to gain by introducing any of these policies, an RPS, cap-and-trade, or a carbon tax relative to doing nothing, that uh, we might be happy with any of the
0: three. And it's false to think that the status quo is cost-free. There's there's cost now uh, of of what we're doing. Let's have our next audience question in Climate One. Welcome.
4: Thank you both for being here tonight. Uh, Speaking of books, Adam Smith wrote a book called The Wealth of Nations, which is kind of the cornerstone of uh, modern-day capitalism. He also wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, 17 years prior. So he writes, The Produce of the Soil... "...maintains at all times nearly that number of inhabitants which it is capable of maintaining." He then goes on to say, "...they are led by an invisible hand to make nearly the same distribution of the necessaries of life, which would have been made had the earth been divided into equal portions among all its inhabitants and afford means to the multiplication of the species." So is it time to look at Smith differently as an economic north star for sustainability?
1: So his point right. was that the, the, the soil is the basis of our wealth. Is that, is that what he's getting out there, do you think?
4: He specifically says the produce of the soil maintains at all times nearly that number of inhabitants which it is capable of maintaining, i.e. a limited growth written famously in yes. 1973. Indeed. So Smith wrote in 17 years prior to The Wealth of Nations about sustainability.
1: So is it it time to look
4: at Smith in a different light?
1: Indeed. And I I think he's probably one of the, the, the most misunderstood thinkers of his age in the sense to how his ideas have been twisted into the extreme forms of free market capitalism that we see today when, in fact, he was talking about something very different indeed. And there's an institute in London called the Adam Smith Institute which speaks in the name of that particular writer but says things that he never said in the sense of of how it's now been twisted into this globalized form of footloose capital. I think if we went back to Smith and actually looked at him literally, we'd have a very different economic system if we were taking his inspiration to guide us now. You probably know much more about this than I.
2: I don't think I do, but I (laughs) agree with what
1: you just said. I think it's very
2: important not to misinterpret Smith as indicating that unfettered markets will always produce the most desirable social outcome. He certainly didn't indicate that. In fact, Smith was very, very skeptical about the potential of of business community to form monopolies and about the so-called spillover effects associated with uh, unpriced uh, resources. So I I, I very much agree with what you said. Let's have our next audience
0: question. Welcome. Hi. Thanks for your talk tonight. Um, So one of the things that you had said that interested me was that companies aren't always going to be economically advantaged for valuing nature. And so the public is going to have to pay for the costs that they incur. And so I was just wondering, and you provided an example of a wetland tax, but how we quantify these benefits and how much the public should be paying to offset these costs and how that calculus works out and the difficulties that are entailed with that.
2: Quantifying the benefits is very difficult. One of the easier cases would be, for example, uh, the case of the Catskills, where they had two alternatives and they could figure out the cost of each. In the Catskills, the catchment was compromised in the sense that it was providing clean water to the New York City area, but because of agricultural practices upstream, it was no longer functioning that way. So the city of New York had a choice of either building a new treatment plant at a cost of about $1.5 billion dollars uh, excuse me, 6 to $8 billion, right. or um, instead paying off farmers uh, upstream to change their practices and allow this uh, th- this uh, catchment, this um, Catskills area, to uh, harness nature's natural water filtration services. And that only cost about $1.5 billion. So there it was pretty clear because you knew how much subsidy you had to do, had to introduce in order to encourage the farmers to make the changes. What's much, much harder is a case where you don't have these clearest alternatives that instead you're considering a policy, say for example, of trying to prevent deforestation. And you don't really know exactly what the benefits are. Many economists, resource economists, make their living trying to measure these. What's the benefit, for example, from avoided climate change? Well, you can do surveys, you can also try to figure out the impact that climate change would have on agricultural productivity, what would be the cost of sea level rise, that's all very imperfect. So it's very, very difficult. Nevertheless, I think it's pretty clear. Economists, resource economists will speak with one voice that there are these negative externalities, and when one needs to go in the
0: direction of pricing them, what's much harder is to figure out how big those prices should be. Let's have our next question for Larry Guler and Tony Juniper at Climate One.
3: I just want to thank both of you so much for your talk. It's one of the best environmental talks I've heard, and for what you're doing. Um, I'm very concerned with the very slow progress. You know, we've done so much destruction already and so many species uh, are being killed, plants and animals. Um, Do you have a lot of hope? I mean, I think it does take intervention and laws and the government stepping in and they're not concentrating enough on this. It's getting a little late, I think. Also, um, I was wondering, uh, are bees still, um, a lot of bees dying, and do you happen to know what the factors, uh, why that's happening? And you mentioned meat, um, the meat industry. That's a major uh, cause of global warming because of all the methane gases they emit.
1: Tony Juniper, you write about pollinators. I do, but just first of all, on the pessimism, um, the or optimism, come to think of it, mm-hmm. um, I met a Norwegian explorer recently, and he gave me what I thought was the best answer to that. He said, it's too late for pessimism. <laughs> so I think we have to assume that um, thinking the worst doesn't really help, and we've got to go for the solutions wherever we can find them. On, on the question of, of what's happening to the pollinators globally, uh, it, it's, a, it's a complex picture, and it varies from place to place, but there are really uh, four or five things involved. The first thing is the destruction of habitat. So um, bees, butterflies, moths, beetles and the other insects that do pollination, they rely on plants to complete their life cycle, both in terms of the larvae that feed on on um, different uh, plants to grow and also the flowers they need to be able to, to um, collect nectar. On top of that is changed agricultural practices. In many parts of the world we're going from Very diverse farming to monoculture farming, which means if you're a bee living in an agricultural landscape, you often have boom or bust feeding opportunities. So a field of canola flowering over a couple of weeks uh, leads to enormous amounts of food being available, but only for a couple of weeks. The queen bee lays loads of eggs, the larvae hatch, the worker bees go into the field. After the canola's finished flowering, there's nothing for them to eat. They starve and the colony collapses. There's that kind of factor On top of that is the stress being caused by lack of food and changed farming practices, causing diseases to break out in hives. And then on top of all of that, and possibly the worst thing of all, is the use of um, different kinds of pesticides, including very nasty insecticides, which obviously um, kill these insects, either outright or by causing sublethal effects on them. So you mix all that together and you see pollinator decline going on across the world in ways which are truly quite alarming. I write in the book about one example of a place in southwestern China where the pollinating insects were killed by chemicals to the point where now in fruit farms in the spring you find entire villages of um, apple and pear growers in the trees with feather dusters moving the pollen between the blossoms by hand because the bees have gone. And if that's not an economic cautionary tale, I don't know what is.
2: On the issue of hope, I'd simply say the bright spot to me is that the dialogue is changing. Books looks like Tony's and other efforts have really led to a much deeper conversation about ecosystem services and the value of the natural capital that produces them. We couldn't have had this discussion, uh, at least wouldn't have be, been able to provide as much evidence of, of, of encouraging signs just 10 years ago exactly. or 20 years ago. Exactly. So that's changing. To me, the, the, the biggest obstacle is not so much analysis. Uh, despite all the uncertainties, I think economists and other policy analysts kind of have an idea of what we can do to create a good balance between the value of nature and the value of other things. I think the real, the real challenge is political and overcoming the special interests.
1: Totally.
0: Larry Gould is a professor of environmental resource economics at Stanford. We're also hearing from Tony Juniper from Cambridge. Let's have our next question. Yes, we have a few minutes left.
3: Thank you. I feel like um, the majority of the discussion has been focused on more of the supply in terms of where the industries are um, interacting with the environment and how the governments are regulating the environment as opposed to demand and the consumer. Do you think a mind shift is necessary? Um, Consumers are very materialistic, and it's growing. Um, is there the potential to maintain current consumerism while industries look after the environment, or do um, companies and consumers need to work together to be more um, aware of their demands? Thank you.
0: Limits to growth and consumerism.
1: Well, I, 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 uh, much of my career I spent as a, as a campaigner trying to raise public awareness, including amongst consumers in terms of the ways in which they might like to buy or shop or, or to use things. And I have to say, I reached the conclusion after many years that the route of trying to change consumption from the bottom up, it's not going to work because we have too few people who are tuning into these issues to make a sufficient difference. It's very important to raise awareness, but I think probably that's more about changing the political climate than it is changing patterns of consumption and about creating the willingness amongst society for the companies and the politicians to do something different. So for the politicians to regulate and set different standards and set different kinds of tax regimes, and for the companies to be investing in different kinds of products and different kinds of consumer offers. So it's got to come from that side with the willingness of the consumer. I don't think we're going to change greenhouse gas emissions from the bottom up by us changing our lights. We've got to change the power stations, and we've got to change the policies that govern the power stations. And that's not to say that the consumer doesn't have a role. The consumer has a huge role. But I would say it's more in the realm of activism and politics than it is by changing the way in which, which we uh uh choose to choose to live. And um, you know having said that, you know, the, the green wheel are the better in sending signals to others. I would very much agree in that I often
2: to my students say, you know, individual responsibility is great, but we also need public policy. Having said that, there's a lot of things that we can do as consumers that don't come from public policy. If you think about recycling, there really are – in many areas, a lot of the recycling is, is, is being done because consumers now have made it a habit. It's become a new norm. It's yeah. not something that's required. Mm. So I think there's really a role for both uh, individual responsibility mm. and hopefully more education can affect the way that consumers want to behave along with public policy.
0: One fine point on that is uh, s- s- recycling creates supply. Consumers also have to buy recycled goods so that those were things recycled don't end up just dumped somewhere because there's no demand, there's no market for the recycled uh, materials that we're that we're creating uh, by by recycling. This our last audience question. Welcome.
2: Uh, thank you. Uh, I'd like you to take a leap of faith for a moment and say we have a global dictator, mm-hmm. and he's elect- he or she has selected the two of you as an advisor and. <laughs> says, well, it looks like we're going to have about 9 billion people, and what three or four things should I be doing for the planet to transform the economy in the next 40 years? And, you know, what would you tell that global dictator to do to actually make a transformation? Right. I'm going go to start off with that. I'm going to show my pedigree here. I think we should require training in environmental economics <laughs> in the public schools. So people understand right. where markets fail, and why allowing companies to recognize, requiring them to recognize the external costs, is actually a good thing for society as a whole. To sort of push us away from the prevailing ideology that tampering with markets, that markets can just about do everything, or that we can all act independently. Second thing is I would uh, push that I be made the uh, the, the global czar rather than yeah. an advisor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Third thing, I had a third thing. <laughs> After that, you get to do oh, yeah, it. Is, is that um, mm. I would say, uh, encourage mm. people to be green voters as well as green consumers. Yeah. I guess this is just going back to the point of just the last question that public policy is so important as yeah. well. Tony um,
1: So like, the first thing I'd say is we, we've got to change what we're measuring, and we've got to move beyond GDP <laughs> to start measuring the sustainable welfare of society. And Measures of happiness and the extent to which we are achieving long lives with low resource inputs is, is the kind of thing we should be striving for rather than more growth. And if we started to measure that, I think things would change very quickly. Um, the second thing I would advise is shifting all the subsidies away from industrial farming and from fossil fuels into <laughs> renewable energy and into sustainable agriculture. And uh, the third thing, now you just made me forget now the third thing. Um, <laughs> The third thing would be oh, no, the third thing. The third thing would be to find um, the policy mix which is going to give us the biggest amount of low-carbon energy and the strongest food security with the maximum number of jobs. Because I think at the moment, what we're doing in the way we're developing, quite a lot of the ways we, we look at agriculture and energy, we're taking people out of the equation. This is simply unsustainable from the point of view of society. And certainly in my country, I see big, big tensions now coming with lots of young people being unable to find jobs. And I think what we need to do is to navigate a path forward that solves these problems, not only through deploying clean technologies, but also clean technologies that provide young people with meaningful employment.
0: We have to end it there. A yeah, full podcast of this program is available in the iTunes store. You can follow Climate One on Twitter at, at Climate One. Our thanks to Tony Juniper, associate professor at the University of Cambridge and author of What Has Nature Ever Done For Us? How Money Really Does Grow on Trees. Also Larry Goulder, professor of environmental and resource economics at Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for coming to Climate One today.
1: Thank you, Greg.